0: Welcome to Three Thoughts On. Today's topic is the role of artificial intelligence in medicine, and my guest is Dr. Dexter Hadley. Dexter's resume is quite impressive. He has an MD, a master's in systems engineering, a PhD in genomics and computational biology, a postdoc in molecular ophthalmology, all from University of Penn. Additionally, he did a clinical pathology residency at Stanford. Today, Dexter is Assistant Professor of Pathology at University of Central Florida here in Orlando. Dexter's expertise is in translating big data into precision medicine and digital health. His research generates, annotates, and ultimately reasons over large multimodal data stores to develop clinical intelligence, identify novel biomarkers, and potential therapeutics for disease. I have known Dexter for about three years now. Last year, we collaborated together in the first ever AI in medicine symposium here in Lake Nona. We often have conversations about how to improve the quality of healthcare here in the United States as well as abroad. I hope that you enjoy this conversation as we cover a number of very important topics that are not only pertinent today, But that will impact the healthcare for future generations. And now, Dexter Hadley. Welcome to Three Thoughts on. I am delighted to have Dr. Dexter Hadley. Dexter, how are you doing today? I'm great, Raphael. Thank you for inviting me. Well, today's topic is actually very interesting to me. It's uh, we want to talk about artificial intelligence in the field of medicine, and you have quite an impressive resume with. quite a few accomplishments, but why don't you take the time to explain to our audience what is it that you do and how did you arrive into doing what you do today? Sure, I'll try to do it in three thoughts. So
1: I always wanted to be a doctor as in my mom was a nurse and she said, you're going to be a doctor. So I said, okay. <laughs> I taught myself to program computers at age 10. Uh, I took it. I was very good at it. And... Now, I've been doing that for the last 35 years. Sunday was my birthday. So you can call me a veteran in sort of combining computation and medicine. Um, Not too many people thought this was that important 30, 35 years ago, but I did. And that sort of took me through medical school. I spent 10 years in medical school. I got a master's in engineering before the genome was sequenced and a PhD in genomics and computational biology quite timely. I had about at least 10, 15 years of background <laughs> by the time I got there. And um, I've been trying to combine the two,
0: um, you know, medicine and computation
1: or computers and medicine ever
0: since. If you could, we can expand on that a little bit. What, what do we get as a society when people like you, who obviously you had a vision about this a while back, and now it seems like it's becoming more and more interesting and more and more well-known, at least more people are talking about it, taking the field of uh, computations and computers and engineering and bringing it together with, with medicine, what, what does that do for the day-to-day life of the average person? What can they expect to come out of that?
1: So about 23, 24, 25 years ago, just to round up, I guess, um, the buzzword was evidence-based medicine. I think there's been, you know, if you just go back in time, the Hippocratic oath was to do no harm. In actuality, 2,000 years ago, there was not much to do. Do no harm and do nothing and see what happened. <laughs> and send the patient a bill. Uh, 20, 25 years ago, uh, we required some evidence that this was not harmful, right? So the buzzwords were evidence based medicine. Uh, the big database at the time was PubMed, right? Which is all the abstracts of all the science-based medicine that we've been doing um and you know if you can come up with some reasonable you know use this drug for this patient because this kind of outcome has improved versus that drug you know that was state-of-the-art Today, the genome has been sequenced. There's 3 billion base pairs, 6 billion nucleotides sort of in the genome. There's an epigenome, there's a microbiome, and we know a lot more evidence at the molecular level. So I think for the average person, this idea of precision medicine is now kind of becoming a reality, at least in terms of things like the cancers. I and mean, cancers is essentially a molecularly driven Treatment plan these days, and there's been an explosion, honestly, in in medical information that you know, such that on a number of levels: one, at the PubMed level, just in the knowledge that we have curated; two, in the um, technical level. I'm a pathologist. I trained at Stanford in pathology and clinical pathology, and it is humanly impossible, um, yet medically legally possible, to be responsible for every single pixel in a gigapixel pathology slide. For instance, you could be sued for every single pixel, yet nobody it's not humanly possible for our brains to sort of deal with that level. So I think, you know, if if you've been doing this and and sort of at the depth that I've been doing this for as long as I've been doing this, I mean, I was doing this before this concept of big data emerged. Um, I think, I think uh, the average consumer should be able to sort of understand this. And I think um, technology and um, um, technologies, I I hope we get to talk about today are going to bring that level of knowledge to the average person, so you don't, you know, you don't need to be doing this for thirty-five years to kind of understand where we are and where we're going, and and uh, you know, uh, you don't need to run a printing press to go photocopy something, right? So, so, so in the same manner, shape, and form, you don't, you shouldn't really have to go query PubMed these days to go look up, you know, in ClinicalTrials.gov, for instance, to go treat your cancer. You should be able to get these um, access to this information through technologies and and and, and, and digital health. Uh, implementations that I hope we, uh, you know, we can touch on.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. So you and I have had conversations in the past about how how technology can help. And I am a technologist, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of technology. I'm a, I'm a student of technology. I was giving the example uh, to somebody the other day about the MRI machine and the origins of the MRI machine and how the MRI machine developed as a result of a physicist who many years prior was trying to understand the composition of nebula in the galaxy. And that technology was then used to develop the first MRI machine. So I love that connection of technology uh, that may seem not very useful to the day-to-day lives and being applied to the day-to-day lives. And when you mentioned about the impossibility for a doctor to understand every pixel. I want to expand on that a little bit because that is a big topic. Doctors today get a lot of criticism when they don't, when they can foresee certain things. But as you know, and as you've just stated, the amount of data available to doctors to analyze is just overwhelming. So, Take us through the steps of how do we go from that old model where the doctor has to be able to look at images and what can we expect the change to be moving forward so that doctors are empowered by the technology that's available and that then the results for the clients and the patients are, are well-received.
1: Yeah, I think, um, again, 2,000 years ago, I mean, when, you know, that Hippocratic Oath was allegedly written, there was not much to do to do no harm. <laughs> Doing just about anything was harmful, uh, unless there was evidence to the contrary. And There wasn't really much to do. Twenty-five, thirty, you know, years ago, conceivably, you could actually go read about some disease in PubMed and come out with a reasoned understanding of what the evidence suggests. That's almost impossible today, right? I think there's so many... Um, there's just so much knowledge, again, at various levels. Every pixel in a gigapixel pathology, slide whole slide image. There's knowledge to be learned. Um, well, having been through this process, let me tell you something. Don't get sick in July. Residency starts in July. Everybody is brand new in July. You don't want to get sick in July, right? Uh, you want to get taken care of by at least someone who has done a year of this. So get sick in June. <laughs> right, it gets like in May. Or you can train backups, you could train second opinions, uh, potentially. That's where I see the potential for this kind of technology where um let's take the obvious elephant in the room, ChatGPT, right? So on average, ChatGPT can write a better generic get into medical school personal statement. It'll be more grammatically correct, the sentence structure would be more. Um, uniform. Uh, right. And that's a technology that everybody is using. Whether doctors want to or not, they will be using ChatGPT to generate discharge summaries, for instance. We all know this and it's coming. Um, to do the work that we don't want to do, in a sense, to do sort of the the voluminous work, the work that there was a lot of data on. Uh, the you know, I foresee this kind of technology. Um, in medicine at least, uh, very succinctly and accurately synthesizing a patient history from disparate data all over the place, right? A human can do that very well. A few med students can do that very well. Uh, You know, I I, I can argue um, a well-trained artificial intelligence algorithm that could read human language like ChatGPT can probably be trained to do that even better and more, um, you know, uh, you can imagine. I I think the interesting thing about medicine is that... um, you know, albeit it, it is a very technical specialty, um, the communication really is written language, which, you know, I, I mean, I think, um, um, whereas I know you're an engineer, Rafael. you, you may have very um, structured data on metallurgy or um, we talked about space just now. I'm sure there's structure, lots of structured ways to exchange information about space and what happened on some experiment. There's very little structured ways to exchange information in medicine, except, uh, how to bill for it right and come back to that that Hippocratic oath you send the bill you're still sending bill. that's the most structure we have in medicine today at least for now um so we you know computers are awesome in insurance claims and you know and I think the future physicians of America need to kind of understand um why did my patient maybe not get approved for this potential therapy it's probably AI That's been biasly trained for whatever reason. We can get into that if you like. So so I think this touches on every aspect of our society, every aspect of potentially medicine. I think medicine has some special circumstances that we can talk about um, that make it different to, 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 to other fields like engineering or aerospace or transportation or whatever, manufacturing. I think medicine dealing with human patients, HIPAA, certain laws, high tech, all of these things make medicine highly regulated relative to the big data needed for other fields, for instance, you know what I mean? So, uh, so, um, yeah, that was a lot more than three thoughts.
0: (laughs) No, no, no worries. No worries. So let's, let's, let me give you an example here or uh, an analogy and then, um, let's see if you can break that down for the audience. So many years ago, the, uh, Russian, Chess master Gary Kasparov went head to head with a computer playing chess. i not if you remember that. You know that, that was that happened. Deep Blue in 1997. Yeah, I remember it exactly. Deep Blue and and of course Deep Blue beat him pretty badly, and everybody remembers that part. Wow, most people don't remember is what happened afterwards. So Gary actually went into seclusion. He was very frustrated. He first said that the machine cheated. it was a whole drama around it, but he went into seclusion and kind of he talks about it now of what happened. He he was just very frustrated. He couldn't believe that a machine could beat a human. And he came up, long story short, he developed this concept that he calls the, the centaur. Centaur, of course, is a mythical creature, it's a half horse, half man. And uh he teaches kids the following philosophy, he says, according to him, it's, it's very difficult for a, or almost impossible for a human to beat a machine head-to-head on a computational task. However, a human assisted by a computer can beat any other computer on the same task. So that th- thus the the centaur analogy, right? So there is, in his mind, a role for the human and a role for the machine that is working with the human, so if we take that analogy and we talk about therapeutics for disease, right, the identification of disease let's just let's just take the specific case of imaging. How do you see that world in the sense of what would be the ideal role for the human and the ideal role of the machine? working with that human to diagnose and maybe even prevent disease?
1: I think medicine is multifactorial. We just went through a pandemic. Probably the best example of precision medicine. What does that even mean? It means there are all kinds of drugs for COVID, especially when the pandemic, when there was supply chain issues, you had to test for that disease before you ensured you gave a drug that was specific to COVID. So it couldn't be... Influenza, it couldn't be the common cold, as in a coronavirus that wasn't the coronavirus, COVID 19, couldn't be any number of other things. It had to be this so that we can give this specific, um, uh, limited, and valuable resource. Right? That's called screening. They screen for COVID at a population level, not, not to treat it, just to find it and contain it. I think AI can help in screening. And we can talk about specifics that are not COVID in a second. And, if, and might as well talk about it now. You just asked about imaging. So what's a good screening example where imaging is used to catch, I don't know, breast cancer, mammography at age 35, 40. Average woman goes every other year for mammography for 20, 30 years. It's a pretty poor process. One in two women are going to get a false positive for reading of maybe not gigapixel pathology, but gigapixel radiology. now. All right. And within reason, every pixel you're medically legally responsible for even though it's unreasonable to expect one you're going to get cancer every time when the negative space is so large as a screening test most tests are negative so you know it's one in a thousand already at the outset and two you're going to catch pre-cancer on a mammogram which is supposed to be the actual image is mainly negative except for a very small precancerous lesion, presumably and three if it happens to be july forget it. You're not going to catch it, <laughs> right? You're not going to get So computers can help in that screening population health sense of an image that informs some kind of public health decision. As in, let's test this with a core biopsy. Then you get into gigapixel pathology. Fantastic. Computers can help there too for diagnostic given a screening aid. In fact, you can see where Assuming this technology improves with time, I don't need to tell you, Kasparov and Deep Blue, that was a rule-based expert system, right, to beat some quantified number of chess moves. The technology has improved much, much more since then. I probably don't need to tell you that the technology is such that we don't even know what the rules are that discriminate early breast cancer. We just know you need a ton of data because these models are billion and trillion parameters scale. And, you know, engineering 101, simultaneous equations, you need billion and trillion parameter data, which we may or may not get eventually. But presumably, you can have a very, um, you know, a very solvable system of equations. Um, You can have a very parameterizable model given enough data to set a very large parameter space in AI. So, so So the new version of Deep Blue is we just need a lot of data that is well annotated. Who got cancer? Who didn't get cancer? Who responded to therapy? Who didn't respond to therapy? Which is exactly what we have today, kind of, in medicine. Kind of. <laughs> right. Uh, so AI is gonna help in screening. AI is gonna help in diagnosis. We all know Da Vinci. I went to Penn. Penn is where the Vinci um, robot was already made to excise the tumor. AI is gonna help in in the insurance claims that get sent for all the commerce. It's really good at that. Again, depending on who you are. Um, and so on and so forth. So you can see AI potentially in every single aspect of this, except today. There is no app to really help me interpret my mammogram as a human being, as a patient, or my prostate scan, or my lung scan, or my Alzheimer's scan in my mom's case, for instance, which is another MRI. Um, And that brings me, I guess, to the last point. This is manner from heaven. You want to talk about centaurs? I think AI is manner from heaven. We have a bunch of technology that's really remaining unused. If you look me up in PubMed, 2007, 2008... We stole the show at RSNA, the Radiographical Society of North America, the radiologist show. We stole the show because um, we studied MRIs with this deep learning thing. We studied a special MRI, an FDG PET, which is a functional type of MRI where there's some biological tracer that can be metabolized. So you see, it's not just a static image. It's, a, uh, it's some level of physiology on the image. In terms of FDG, which is a tracer, it's not that important. But no human really knows how to read an FDG PET efficiently, right? It's just too much information. Uh, There's not a lot of data floating around. But I was at a place, uh, UCSF in particular, the number one recipient of government funding for this kind of research. Um, And we were able to predict Alzheimer's. And as you know, my mom has Alzheimer's. Uh, We were able to predict Alzheimer's with this FDG PET that's been hanging around this awesome um, university five years earlier than documented on the chart. Using this AI approach now, yeah, there's no cure for Alzheimer's, but I wish I had known this five years before, right? Just to deal with my personal problem. So, so you never know. Like this is a whole new uh, world, I think that we're dealing in, and I think the problem is not the technology anymore. The problem is medicine <laughs> and the way medicine works and the and, and data or the lack thereof. Um, the, the billing, or you know, the approvals, or the lack thereof, and, and sort of um, fine-tuning the system with these new tools that we have.
0: It's very interesting. There's a lot there. I, I can, I can clearly see. And, and again, we've talked about this. We talked about the breast cancer potential, right? Because of all the images and the and the the combination and the training of a AI ML engine with millions and millions and millions of images so that it can, like you said, do this pixel-by-pixel pixel evaluation in the hopes of coming up with better prevention. So there's obvious a model for the processing of mega-gigapixel imaging independent of what the imaging is. What about documentation? Because I see that as a problem, too. I see doctors. I talk to doctors. You know We live here in Lake Nona. Both you and I, you know, we're surrounded by, by medical people, and just to be quite transparent, you know, the, the the average doctor doesn't have time to read everything that gets published in his field every day. It's just not the case. I mean, my father is an MD, as you know, you know, he's he's semi retired, and back in his days, when I was a little kid in the '70s, he used to attend two to three conferences a year. He would get journals in the mail, medical journals. And the combination of the conference and the journals gave him information that he needed in order to learn what's new in medicine. Right? And then he talked to all his colleagues, they got together, they brainstormed, and, to, and then they went ahead and took care of their patients. Well, you fast forward to today, any given day, somewhere in the world, there's probably a couple of thousand peer reviewed quality papers being published on any given topic in within the field of medicine. How can a doctor in any discipline consume that information and make it useful in a way that it can impact his patients in a positive way? I don't see it without the use of technology. like to get your thoughts on that.
1: I don't think it's possible without the use of technology, right? So at least today, okay, so Deep Blue, you had to actually know how to play chess to win rules. You had to know the rules of the game. I would imagine the that- reinforcement learning of chess playing algorithms today. Just study how to play it and learn on their own. We have no idea how they make these decisions. We didn't tell them. It just saw the outcomes, right? You've heard of AlphaGo. All of these type of um, approaches are reinforced um, by just learning, by observing. We don't know how these things make the decisions, so they just know who won, who lost and some kind of back-propagated algorithm through the path of states that led to said outcome. And that's a more sophisticated average, basically, with a lot more dimensions that our little puny human brains can't measure. I mean, gigapixel pathologies, gigapixel dimensions, right? I mean, you you can't even think it out. But, But essentially, it's the average of some space that's the best estimate of true or false. That's what this is. You know, an average is a linear, real number space. These averages are in words in the case of ChatGPT. What's the average sentence for some prompt? That's what ChatGPT is. It's the average order of the words, given some other order of the words prompting. What we're talking about is the average of of pixels, of images. Um, And when you get to high dimensional space like this, you need a lot of data, and a lot of data... Well, welcome to medicine, post-HIPAA, post-high tech. There's a lot of data floating around, right? So, so I think, um, well, I just got a teaching the first five days of medical school. These my med- students have been here for one week. And the, not only us, but every medical school is accredited by the LCME, Liaison Committee for Medical Accreditation, LCME. LCME is telling us today we are not teaching these students by lecture anymore. It is all case-based. They showed up on day one. We gave them a case. I didn't say a word. I just sat there, kind of facilitated the discovery and the curation of their own. Because it's almost impossible to go teach this information. I mean, outside, okay, myosis, mitosis, I'm a geneticist, A, T, C, and G. Outside the basic, which is like an alphabet, um, there's so much information. It really has to be. Um, we have to teach them how to find it because it's going to change from this year to next year. The cancer, you know, the cancer drugs are going to be twenty more targets. Might be a whole new mechanism. It seems you know. It seems doctors and medical education is. Uh, in fact, I can tell you, medical education is um, has acknowledged that fact. That question you just asked. That this knowledge is in it, it is, um intractable. Technology is going to have to be used today. That technology is Google. Tomorrow it might be ChatGPT. You know, once we fix the hallucinations, uh, right. <laughs> Uh, and to be honest, uh, ChatGPT can plan my lecture on meiosis and mitosis probably better than I can and can outline it. What the average person asking that question and the average context of words, given some prompt. Uh, so, so I think that's the future. How do we use these tools? And ChatGPT is just another iteration of large language models. They've been around for quite a while. This one actually documented what you know we've long thought you know, just to kind of put this in context, imaging had its renaissance moment in 2012 when AlexNet beat the ImageNet competition. I think ChatGPT is the Renaissance moment for text and, and natural language. There's bound to be other renaissance moments, whatever they are, we don't know yet. And um and I think, you know, at least medical education has appreciated that we cannot deterministically cover every single epoch it's it's just not uh, who could predict this could you predict a year ago (laughs) that chat would be done and i study this and i i've been saying this for a while i didn't believe myself (laughs) and then it kind of happened so so yeah so so i'm in total agreement uh lcme is in total agreement with you i think the future is leveraging these technologies i think it it may be interesting to talk about medicine what makes medicine so special and, and and why um it might. It may never work. If you ask me, this is never going to work, and we can talk about why. At least in medicine, it, it, it won't work for most people. It hasn't worked for most people. Why is that? Because if you look at the outcomes of disease in America, it is very disparate, right? It is very inequitable for whatever reason. COVID is a great example, right? People get COVID taking the bus to Disney. So if you don't take the bus to Disney, which is called a social determinant of health. You're not going to get COVID. Guess who takes the bus to Disney, right? <laughs> uh, right? So, so, so this is what makes this problem in America almost impossible to solve. Because all you're going to do is exponentiate the biases we already see and clearly have documented. Like taking the bus to Disney, right? Which has nothing to do with COVID, but that is the cause of why so many people that live in certain areas in Orlando have gotten COVID and others don't. Because there are in people that go work at Disney and physically have to go interact with the community. So I think that's a really hard problem, and that's a societal problem. That's a regulation problem. That's an FDA problem. That's a uh, every you know. That's a LCME problem. That's a, a community problem. That's a, a church problem. That's a school problem. That's a really intricate problem that I have realized doesn't matter how much genetics, how much genomics, how much genome you sequence can't really solve those problems without a different approach.
0: And there's another problem too, right? You know, I, in parallel to that, which you, you can tell me if I'm, keep me honest here, that it's probably as important, which is the access to the data, right? I mean, you, you mentioned ChatGPT. ChatGPT can only do what it can do based on what it can access. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and AI uh, imaging is the same way. So there, there's, there's this issue of where's all the data that can be accessed, because right? it seems to be in multiple different pockets throughout the internet. Some of those are firewalled, right? Well,
1: it depends. I think in America, this has to make somebody money for it to work. That's the definition of how our healthcare and everything in America works. It's a very capitalized system. You know the best AI? What does it do in medicine? It probably doesn't diagnose stuff. It, it conducts the commerce of medicine. We've shared the ICD and CPT codes so we can charge each other for medicine. That works for everybody. When I say ICD, maybe let me explain, right? There is an international classification of disease for death on a bicycle by motor vehicle accident. That is a charge or something to that equivalent. Very, very detailed descriptors of how we can get paid in medicine you know what there is not an icd code for metastasis and recurrence of cancer how are you going to model it right so i mean we have since communities have come together post-covid i mean i don't know if you notice but people don't really go to the doctor anymore at least i go to the doctor once once a year now for my kids and it's telemedicine telemedicine ache is a telemedicine rash is a telemedicine there's really hardly any reason to go to the doctor anymore at least you know from my one-year-old to my 16 year old and yeah, so post COVID, we had a lot of time to think about this. And we, you know, the community came to the conclusion: doesn't make a lot of sense. Like we need to describe metastasis. We need to describe pharmacogenomic response. Which drug, did, you know, and so on and so forth. Not only the imaging; it's sort of this um, this metadata for now is critical in 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 training supervised machine learning. To be honest, which is what most of uh, medical uh, artificial intelligence and, and machine learning is and there's just very little supervision there's very, very little supervision i think ChatGPT is showing us how we can use relatively unstructured well it's not true chat also is supervised the order of words is supervised we just write it right we don't realize that that, that that's um well maybe we do realize but all chat predicts the next word most likely given you know endless dimensions and and configurations so that needs to happen in medicine and it is very slowly what i find very interesting as we live in florida as you know i find most um most people and, and most of the press and most of the sensationalism in this state is about masks and whether we should wear them or we should not wear them for covid It is not about access to mammograms and who has it and who doesn't have it. And if it's accurate for certain populations and inaccurate for certain populations, I think people would be stunned if they actually knew, you know um, what we all supposedly pay for. Like our taxes pay for these um, public health policies that people have no clue for whatever reason. Um, So I think as doctors, we have essentially failed our digital populations. There is no app in the million apps in Apple's App Store, which is a trillion, multi-trillion dollar company that you can really say is going to save lives. Maybe the Apple Watch, I'll give you that, this arrhythmia. I've seen a couple stories about that. Um, but there's hardly any real impact in digital health thus far because of uh, a number of reasons, most of them being capitalistic and, and, and lack of access to the data, except by the people that produce it, that want to keep you coming back to them to produce more data. Which means we're not going to easily share it with our competitors, except to bill, because <laughs> all of us need to bill, right? So that that's been my expectation, and I feel like it makes no sense because HIPAA gives patients the right to own and distribute their data, and High Tech says everybody has to have an EHR. So we already have in place the regulatory mechanism for patients to share the data. In fact, the HIPAA, there's um, healthcare information. The P in HIPAA is not privacy. Yeah, there's a privacy. I guess for portability, it was meant to share. Uh, your data—it has not ended up as that. It has ended up as um, a bunch of privacy laws that are um, are cited as to why we can't effectively share this data, unless you
0: know, unless we want to, <laughs> which is what it ends up being, right? Unless we want to, unless the population agrees that they all, every one of us, wants our data to be shared.
1: Well, you can easily de-identify the data. HIPAA was intended for it to never be re-identifiable. I think what the future is going to be is, well, listen, this is my data. I should own it. Much like uh, Google owns it, I should own it. If you notice, there's a huge push from these centralized networks uh, with Twitter and Musk and X or whatever it's called uh, to Mastodon and decentralized networks where we actually get to keep our data. Why? Because it's valuable. Clearly, it's valuable. So I think medicine, you know, I think... um, Let's keep, let's keep a focus on breast cancer. One in two women get a false positive for breast cancer. right One in two. So when you do get that result that you don't may or may not be true, what do you do with it? You think you're going to go post your mammogram on Instagram and ask for advice from Instagram? No, that's terrible that's also documented as misinformation and bad for your health. That's what I mean physicians have really failed their patients. What are you supposed to do with it? But all you really need is somebody else with the false positive to say, hey, that happened to me. One and two get this false positive. I mean, there's really no no way. Um, there's That social network doesn't exist yet. That could be on Mastodon very easily in a decentralized manner where you keep your data, right? Um, so that's where I think this thing is going. I think, I think what happened with COVID um, – is a revelation of how you know things are. COVID was the most equitable, um, clinically tested um, disease or pandemic, I guess. If you look at cancer, cancer is not equitable at all, <laughs> at all. I mean, and neither are the outcomes um, in patients. Um, you know, but barring these social determinants of health, that we, I mean, how do you fix the problem of this bus and you know having to go to work if you work in fast food or in retail or whatever? But, uh, but in terms of how the science was done, I think few people can argue that COVID was very, very well done. The vaccine was made to be equitable and to work in everybody. It was explicitly done because there was a lot of money to do it. So this just kind of just proves how this has to get done. It has to be from a top-down kind of approach. Um, or driven sort of by the community and the patients that drove, whether we wear masks in Florida or we don't wear masks in Florida, drove our policy. I don't see why patients, if, you know, physicians can provide services that sort of engage and educate our patients. I, I don't see why patients can't drive other more important aspects of medicine as well.
0: No, I, that's fantastic. I, I, do, I do agree with you. I, I foresee or I have a dream of a world where there is a platform where I can put all of my medical records and that others can put all of their medical records. And its purpose is is to perform correlation, causation analysis in an artificial intelligence way so that not only I benefit, I'm benefiting from everyone else, but everyone else is benefiting because of me, because my grain of salt is one of hundreds of millions of records that then this engine is analyzing and then coming up with potential prevention, diagnosis, outcomes, and even treatments that then a doctor can then, can then review. Right. So in my mind, it's almost like you're old enough to remember the Jetsons, but it's, I kind of, I kind of see it that way, right. Where a doctor has access to this engine. And behind this engine, there's multi-platforms, right? One of them is is the one that consumes all the medical records, right? Then on the other side is the one that's consuming all the medical reports reports and journals and papers and books, right? And then on the other side, it comes out, chat GPT-esque recommendations that then the doctor can review and then they can make a decision that is probably a lot more informed than the decisions they make today just because of how far they are from all that data and all that analysis. That's right. And that's Again, that's that centaur that I talk about. But I feel like we're pretty far away from that, and not for technical reasons, but for other reasons. Do you agree? Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. So Congress has done a report on what is called health information blocking. You can Google that. It is well known for reasons well beyond what HIPAA intended, which is the P is for portability. Information is siloed due to market forces, due to academic rivalries, all kinds of reasons that information can be weaponized relative to the intention of HIPAA, which is to improve health healthcare outcomes for patients. Right. So again, I really think and why I'm thankful and, and, and happy you invited me to speak is because I think doctors don't know. I think, you know, Med school has been such a task to cram all of this information, and that has been the medical education model for so long, to pass USMLE. Well, guess what can pass USMLE in the 90th percentile these days? ChatGPT, right? So, so either which way, you might, you're as good asking chatGPT questions about the USMLE as you are anybody else who passes the USMLE at the 90th percentile. So this idea of hybrid artificial intelligence, you're absolutely right. We taught ChatGPT how to pass the USMLE by reading all of the material that it was trained on up until 2021, right? It is practically impossible for any one human brain to do zero-shot learning on that scale of data. At least it's impossible for me. But now we can leverage ChatGPT because we taught it some stuff that to do zero-shot learning. What happened in this, 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 and this specific configuration of molecular markers and the specific configuration of population, you know, we can do that kind of learning now because of the AI, because of the high dimensional space that our puny brains really just can't understand. And this argument of a black box, we don't know what's going on. Do you know how the best pathologist in the world makes a decision about cancer or not cancer? We don't know. We have no idea. We trust his judgment same thing with the, at least with the technology we can go in there and probe it right we can go in there before there was all these attention maps there was saliency maps you go probe the pixels in these um right so 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 i'm i mean i mean obviously i'm very bullish on, on this i think this can only improve if developed appropriately if not developed appropriately you're going to have Henrietta Lacks 2.0 and we all know that ended yep not very well Well, it depends on your perspective. They just settled out of court. So I hope that's what happens in medicine. I hope at some point we reach the point where there is transparency and there is an effect of said transparency, where we improve outcomes, whatever that outcome can be. If Henry de Laxel started Regeneron and Thermo Fisher Scientific and whomever else that went on to do so much good, I mean, that has to be a transparent um, and acknowledged right if other people are expected <laughs> that event i mean imagine how many other people we don't know about <laughs> whose cells have been you know immortalized uh, i don't know if you're going to talk about Henrietta Lacks, but uh, i think that's a good example i think that is what's going to happen in the digital age if we don't if we meaning physicians don't really uh, understand how this works understand how this can help how this can more importantly hurt our
0: patients no, fantastic. Well, thank you, Dexter. This, is, this has been a good, we're out of time. Unfortunately, we can keep talking for another another hour. Where can people find your work?
1: Well, I never really gave you three things. Let me give you three thoughts. Oh, please, on please, medicine.
0: please. Give me three thoughts for the for the audience on AI in medicine. Yeah, three thoughts in
1: AI medicine. I think in the age of data science, the scientific method is almost dead. Scientific method. And Wired wrote this up 10, 15 years ago. We have all the data to ask all the questions. We just don't ask the right questions, right? Scientific data is come with hypothesis. Go find the data and then try to disprove your hypothesis. Well, the data is already there. Right? So this concept is relatively archaic and it's not doesn't make a lot of sense today, if you ask me. So scientific method is that we already have the data. We generate it by law. <laughs> yeah, we may not be able to get to it, but we got a ton of data. We got a ton of data, right? So one. Two, AI works really well at one or two things, right? If you give AI a bunch of data, it will consistently give you the right answer. The problem is what we already touched on. Medicine in America is so variable depending on what population you feed in. Right? Depending on what population you fall in, medicine in America is extremely variable in how good and how well it performs. And that's what we're teaching the AI. In there, and lies the problem. Right? So unless we can fix that last bias... Basically, bias in, bias out, garbage in, garbage out. Pick your favorite engineering analogy. That's exactly what's going to happen. In medicine, it gives me a career to focus on, but I think it gives humanity something to think about, right? How this may not work out the way we expected it. We make a relax 2.0, and that's not a good one. one that robs the patrimony of everybody's pain and suffering, one, like hers and her families, And two, that's not how this is going to work. I don't think that's how it's going to work. It makes no sense to think that machine learning for breast cancer mammography trained at Stanford or MIT, where you have very different populations and cancer biology of South Florida and Central Florida, it makes no sense to think that these places that are developing this knowledge, yeah, their, their patients are going to be fine. But ours, it's, it's not expected to work. And the evidence suggests it's not going to work. I mean, that's a thing. And that's something that we really have to face as a society. and at some point, I hope you know, this does come together like it did uh, for Henrietta Lacks, where this becomes transparent, this becomes uh, you know, studied beyond me, I, I like computers. <laughs> this is an ethical problem, this is a societal problem, a regulation problem, all kinds of, of, of higher orders need to happen before this is gonna make a lot of sense, I think, in our society for most people.
0: Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you again. Thank you again, Dexter. Uh, and then where can people find your work?
1: Oh, I'm one of the people that you can Google, or I'm actually on ChatGPT, it may or may not be accurate, but um, hadleylab.org is probably the easiest way to get in touch with me and kind of see what we're doing. Um, Just Google me on ucfs.edu. I'm pretty easy to find, I've got a bunch of videos floating around. Um, And PubMed, a a ton of publications if you're interested in that level, um, of all kinds of things, from bioinformatics to digital health to... I mean, I ran PCRs back in the day, so you're welcome to go look me up.
0: Well, thank you very much, Dexter. Thank you for your time. And I'll see you at the next party. (laughs)
1: Likewise. Have a good night.